Hello and welcome to a special episode of the Nuanced Naturopaths. And in this episode of the Nuanced Naturopaths, we, Julie and I are so thrilled to have had Mark Payne join us for an amazing conversation. Mark has 30 years of experience as a clinical health professional and educator, and for the last decade has focused on naturopathic clinical practice and complementary medicine education. He has a particular interest in health optimization and longevity, as well as cardiometabolic health, digestive disorders, immune disorders, and helping those living with HIV to achieve a high level of health and well-being. And it was just an absolute treat to get to talk to Mark because he's so uh, he's so good at <laughs> he's so good at cardiometabolic health from a functional and naturopathic perspective. So we get his take on that. He's also very passionate about hydration, so we talk about that as well as well as so many other topics in between in the realms of just improving our lives, optimizing our health, a little bit of biohacking. So I hope you get something from it. Please feel free to share your feedback in the Spotify questionnaire below if you're listening on Spotify. Hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to the Nuanced Naturopaths podcast. This is a friendly conversation between two friends, us, Julie and Corinda. We're passionate about finding the nuance in natural health. As degree qualified naturopaths, we like to ask the questions that need to be asked about all aspects of health, healing, and well-being. We absolutely delight in questioning firmly held beliefs and finding the nuance in all subjects, health-related and beyond. Sometimes it can get a bit technical, but hopefully we explain things in a way that is accessible to anyone interested in natural health, whether you're a practitioner or someone who just wants to learn more and optimize your well-being. It's a chat about poop, periods, and everything in between. Buckle up for a laugh, a cry, and for some things that you are yet to consider about your health. The nuanced naturopaths acknowledge the Wurundjeri Woi Wurrung people as the traditional owners of the country on which this podcast is recorded and recognise their connections to land, sea and community. We pay respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and their elders, past, present and emerging, always was and always will be. This podcast is not intended as medical advice and should not be viewed as such. It is general in nature and may not apply to you. Please seek the help of a suitably qualified medical professional should you have any questions or concerns raised in this discussion. And if you would like to work with either Julie or myself one-on-one, you can check the show notes for links to book in for a free connection call. Today on this very special episode of The Nuanced Naturopaths, Julie and I are very pleased to have a very special guest. And uh, before we let him introduce himself, I will say... It's, it feels like a privilege and an honor to be able to have this one-on-one time with you and to to also share your wisdom and teachings with our audience, because since, since uni, and if, if you won't say it, I'll be the one to say it, (laughs) Mark taught both me and Julie back at, uh, back at the uni days of our Bachelor of Health Science degree. And it was just, it was the talk of the halls, you know, in terms of like, you wish you had Mark for absolutely clinical yeah. exam and yeah. you know the intro to bio it was just made everything made our learning journey so much easier yeah so today I would like to welcome Mark Payne to the podcast cue the silent <laughs> applause <laughs> <laughs> oh well luckily there's going to be no video attached to this <laughs> um thanks Corinda and thanks Julie for having me um I'm not sure that too many people walking the halls 
wanted to have me for clinical examination. <laughs> I did, and I didn't, and I didn't get you. I was so disappointed. Oh well, I'm I'm prepared for us to go back and do it all over again if you wish to. But <laughs> sure, done. <laughs> Julie, Julie, and I say over and over again, wouldn't you just love to do the degree all over again? Don't joke about that. We'll. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I I, I want to learn the, the the triple pulse, the Tibetan pulse thing. Oh, oh, I can teach you that one. Yeah, that's that's quite interesting. Well, it's the same as the, it's almost the same as the Chinese pulse. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And we were, we were talking earlier, you know, before we started recording about the learning that we have to do after the degree. And that that's actually, I, I found a big part of it in terms of other healing modalities like mm. Chinese medicine, Ayurveda, and ugh, yeah. how, how, how there's so much more um, we can apply to just make the most out of our our modality which yeah. is a little bit can be we have the advantage of being able to pull yeah. from different areas yeah and traditions Absolutely. anyway mark <laughs> would you like to tell us a little bit about who you are what brought you into the natural medicine field what work do you currently do and what's kind of lighting you up at the moment in in the health and healing world yeah absolutely so i mean i started my career in nursing um and spent you know, the first half, well, the first half of my nursing part of my career, so, you know, almost 10 years in um, swipping, switching back and forth between accident and emergency and coronary care, cardiac intervention. You know, I was interesting. I was the one that was, you know, in the theatre putting, you know, helping put the stents in people's hearts, which we now go, oh, don't do that. Um, and I think, you know, doing all those strange things and, you know, being in the emergency, dealing with all the things that come through that. Um, and in the second half of my nursing career, I changed over to, uh, which is when I moved from Perth over here to Melbourne. And I moved specialties into an area called immunohematology. So I was dealing now with a lot of cancer, um, a lot of um, organ transplant patients, a lot of infections. I did a lot in um, transfusion medicine. So people who were having to come in for surgery, um, I would be involved in, we collect and store their own blood so we can transfer their own blood back to them. It's called autologous blood uh, procurement. Um, so working a lot in that field at that point in time. Is that gave me sort of my second field of clinical interest. So my primary field of clinical interest is cardiovascular and cardiometabolic disorders. And um, then of course my second field of clinical interest is complex immune cases as well. So I'm able to kind of bring them together. And, you know, interestingly, these days we now go, actually, well, cardiometabolic is all about immunity and inflammation. And so they kind of all meld together into one. Mm -hmm. um, but for me, I had really got a realisation that in nursing, that by the time the person gets to the hospital and I'm doing what I'm doing, it's too late. They're already very advanced and so I was always wanting to get back particularly when I talk about the field of cardiovascular mm. I was like we need to intervene earlier long before the person is having their first heart attack or we're already putting the stent in their heart and so um, and then from my experience in immunohematology I like all naturopaths to be was <laughs> I am going to develop the first natural antibiotic and I'm going to become rich and famous. Um, <laughs> give up on that that pursuit, but <laughs> I tried hard. Um, and so anyway, I went on to study naturopathy and um, fell in love with naturopathy and the philosophy of that, but needed to know more. Mm -hmm. uh, so went straight into doing uh, wellness studies and lifestyle medicine. 
um, to get that more holistic uh, understanding, but also to understand more about this exercise physiology and all the things that I needed to know in that space. Mm. Um, and did a, did a brief sideline into education and taught for a couple of minutes. <laughs> Grateful for that. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and also along the way that I, I became very attracted to the functional medicine approach. And as that is, you know, the, well, the name tells us, how is the body functioning? Look for where the dysfunction is, correct the dysfunction, support the function. And so, um, and I'm a very science brain. And so I was attracted to functional medicine because it's, you know, do the tests, get the labs, get the data, collect the things, oh. um, which you can do across, you know, any any profession, but it's much more, I mean, you know, most naturopaths these days may order one or two tests on, on some of their patients, uh, but it's routine that almost every patient that walks into our clinic here, they're walking out with four or five tests that we're having done as well as GP bloods and a whole bunch of stuff. Um, it's quite common for us to gather that degree of data. And so, but about two and a half years ago, I stepped out of full-time education, part-time clinical and back into full-time clinical practice um, as a naturopath functional medicine practitioner here at Melbourne Functional Medicine. So here I work doing that. So my clinical stuff is majority cardiovascular, cardiometabolic and complex immune uh, cases. But increasingly now my work is with health optimization, uh, prevention, um, longevity, the, you know, uh, that sort of area now. So I'm having the joy at the moment that's really exciting of getting to work with people who are not sick. Yeah. They're all well and they're like, but I want to be more well. And I'm like, that's awesome. Let's go do that. Yeah. So, yeah. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I think based on that, I think I would love to start off with cardiovascular and just delving into that a little bit more. And I guess to start with, just to tab this, I'm, I'm curious as to what got you interested in that in the first place. But something else that Julie and I were talking about earlier today was that I'm really also curious to know how we can get more people motivated about cardiovascular health when they may not yeah. have any of the uh, conventional signs of anything yeah. being wrong in that field. So, yeah. yeah. Preventing yeah. care. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the, the key interest for me in cardiovascular health, as the first part of your question there, um, is that I well, I have a family history that's absolutely horrendous um, in terms of cardiovascular health. And I, and I don't make this a secret. I, I speak about it for that purpose of saying to people, come on, we need to get you motivated to look at this. And so essentially um, in my family, the oldest living male was my father who got to his 70th birthday. Um, and But... In all other cases, males were dead before they were 60. Um, so, um, and to put that into context, in my family, there are two existing males, um, and that's myself and one cousin who's about four years older than me. And so we're in, you know, I'm 50, he's 54. And so we are now at that point, we're in that decade, we're actually, we're just dying. Um, and, you know, I don't, I, I, I say that jokingly, uh, because it's been a thing that I'm very realistic about in my life. But it literally is that um, it's not that males in my family live long, sick periods of time before they die. 
they quite literally come home from work and they go to make a cup of tea and they're not seen alive again. And it's near spontaneous. The females in my family, on the other hand, live long and live long, unhealthy, very poor quality, healthy lives with severe cardiovascular disease. And so it was from the outset a very prominent part of my family that I was like, I don't want to go down that path. And so it it was, you know, it's become my professional pursuit to go, well, what what do we need to do about it? And it's actually the, the heart fascinates me. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got this chunk of muscle that just sits inside your chest, bumping, you know, pumping away. And when you start to understand that it's more than that and what influences that, a person's mindset um, influences how that heart functions. Yeah. You know, yeah. and that's that becomes fascinating to me. And it's like you can see somebody who's relatively healthy but has a really poor mindset and they bad outcomes where somebody has a really bad heart and you think, I don't know how we're going to do this, but they've got the most positive outset in their mindset the outcomes are great. And, you know, I've had cases of, you know, I spoke about it in a recent webinar of, of a patient of mine who had very severe dilated cardiomyopathy. He was a middle-aged man. He was morbidly obese, um, quite depressed, turned to alcohol, became an alcoholic because he had was giving up. Um, and eventually he got to, he was working with me. Um, by the end of the six months he was working with me, he was touring Italy with his family, living living a happy life, being a happy man, eating differently, and to cap it all off, he went on a fun run around Uluru in the Northern Territory, most of which he did in bare feet because he didn't, his shoes were hurting him. And so that tells me the difference. Like, here's a man who was told by his doctors, stay on your medications, don't exercise, don't do anything, you know, you, you're not well enough to do it. To yeah. a man who runs around a big rock in the middle of the desert. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, that, that tells you the difference of mindset. So the heart fascinates me in that space. Yeah. So um, I've pursued that now for, oh, well, I've pretty much been working in that field my whole health career. But, yeah. but yeah, as a naturopath, it's been, you know, well over a decade now I've been going down that line. So Yeah, right. Yeah. And so I guess... I feel like with cardiovascular, it becomes a bit of a spectrum, as you've sort of outlined for us, where you're either at that that one end where it's like there's awful morbidity, there's awful quality of life, there's really overt signs like, yes, your heart is not working well, mm. kidneys are struggling, blood pressure, you know, the the I feel like that classic kind mm. of um, metabolic syndrome picture of, you know, there's inflammation, the liver's not great, mm. all the things are happening. But what... I guess, where can we catch people before that? If we're thinking about more of that preventative health, health Mm. optimization in the realm of cardiovascular, where can we get people, you know, giving a crap about heart health? Well, I'm I'm thinking in particular of women that come to see me in their sort of mid to late 40s. I I mean, often not aware that they're perimenopausal. Mm. and they're coming to me because they've put on weight, they're just not feeling great. Cardiovascular health is the last thing on their list, mm. but it's the thing that I want to educate them about most because that's more important mm. than the symptom. I mean, we can we can we can help with them with the symptoms. That's mm. that's not so much the issue, but I want them to look long term and not worry about the aging process and I'm putting on weight 
Mm. <laughs> I want them to be concerned about their heart, yeah. You raise a good point there. We know from the statistics that whilst the incidence of coronary and heart events is greater in males, they have worse outcomes in females. Um, and that's because they're going undetected and they're not being seen. And we even know that a heart attack in the male looks very different to a heart attack in a female, for example. And people are often very unaware that a heart attack is not something that happens in a split second or a minute in most cases. It's yeah. developing over several days. But once we get to heart attack, too late. Okay, well, actually, I'm going to, I'm going to retract that. <laughs> too late. It's it's advanced now. Okay, I think the the core of the question was you know cardiovascular, uh, and I'll I'm going to change the term. I'm going to move it to cardiometabolic. Okay, yeah, um, cardiovascular is structural, mechanical things are the 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 plumb, you know plumbing's blocked up. Let's get it yeah. open. Um, cardiometabolic starts to bring in the complexities of inflammation glucose, insulin, et cetera, that can start to influence um, cardiovascular health, okay? Yeah. I think, you know, the core of the question is how do we, how do we get people to give a damn earlier yeah. so that we can intervene earlier? And it was quite interesting because I've had the, the great experience recently of finally finding a way to get the doctors to do all the screens and, you know, oh. I... I told a story to the doctors and I might've exacerbated a fact or two about that to capture their attention. But I got, I got, I got to do the coronary calcium score and I got to do the echocardiogram and the ECG and I got to do the stress echo and I managed to get to do the CT angio, mm. so on and so forth. And all of which was um, done. So the first time I've managed to get the whole thing done. The interesting part was the cardiologist that I went to see. Um, he's a professor of cardiology and he turned around and he said, it astounds me that the number one leading cause of morbidity and mortality worldwide still has no public health screening process. Wow. And so he said, so the fact that you're here wanting to be proactive, he goes, let's just do it all. And so... That's the kind of mentality we want uh, in, in healthcare is don't sit around waiting for the signs and symptoms to turn up. Yeah. Act now. Yeah. And I speak to all of my patients. So, I, you know, whenever you see a patient, get the family history, okay? As soon as you hear the word hypertension, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, whatever, yeah. um, even if it's like, oh, it doesn't look like it's a big history, boom, it's there. Now I need to understand what's going on. Mm. And then gather, gather the information and, I, and build the case to present back to the patient about why they need to be aware of cardiovascular mm. disease, mm. particularly in perimenopausal women who, uh, once they become postmenopausal, that's when they very rapidly equal men in risk factors for these conditions mm. prior to you know, menopause, they have some level of protection mm. because of their hormonal status. Although I don't have evidence to back this up, but I'm going to argue that in today's world, a lot of that protection is diminished by diet, food chain, sedentary lifestyle, stress, all those factors. I don't know that they have as the degree of protection. Yeah. And I say that because 
increasingly we see people of a much younger age. Ten years ago, you know, all of the patients that I would see would be 50, you know, 45 plus. Mm-hmm. Now I'm, I'm treating people, they're 28, 29, 30, 31, and they're already hypertensive and showing, you know, dyslipidemia, et cetera. Um, and so there's a significant shift down. Mm-hmm. I will admit that the last few years has probably contributed to that quite significantly, making people very sedentary. I think the answer is that as practitioners, we need to not be focused on are there signs and symptoms of, well, let me get baseline data now and mm-hmm. see where we're at. It's critical because, you know, that's not only for cardiovascular, but Alzheimer's disease. You know, Alzheimer's disease in our calling you know, diabetes, you know, type three diabetes. And it's like, well, that's glucose regulation and insulin regulation and so on and so forth, which is the same thing that's driving cardiovascular disease. But, Mm. you know, we've got to get in earlier, get baseline and educate. I think that's, I spend 80% of my time just educating. The treatment of cardiovascular stuff when it's there is not particularly thrilling it's you know it's your usual stuff that you do for cardiovascular and largely once you get people onto that stuff is long-term treatment you know like a lot of these people are going to have to do this stuff now for the rest of their lives we can get in earlier and offset that cause yeah get the inflammation down um etc then they don't have to be on that stuff forever um, and they can check in so i'm going to put a put the call out to the practitioners of the world and just say you know, do do the screening now. Like, why not? If the person sitting yeah. in front of you, take the blood pressure of every single solitary patient that walks in your clinic. Mm. And if, they, if you're doing it by telehealth, send them to the pharmacy. Most pharmacies have a blood pressure service that they can do. Um, just get that data back and check blood glucose. Mm. I don't know. I don't know if you guys do it in your clinic, but we do uh, random blood glucose here in the clinic, so we can gather that data. So. Mm, oh, I like that. If yeah, yeah we, we both do online predominantly at the moment, but I have been my brain has been a lot more in that realm of we just dropped an episode yeah, today on, on, blood <laughs> on blood glucose because we just randomly started talking about it. Yeah. And um, I always yeah. thought in my head I always had it as yeah, interesting. Yeah, debunk me, Mark, because I had it in my head, oh, if I can't do it fasting when I was in person clinic. I thought, oh, what's the point? You know, what's a random? Yeah, just do it. Because the thing is, I mean, you can ask me, when did you last eat? I ate two hours ago. Okay, so I should have a glucose in a two-hour postprandial range. You know, Mm. it should be, you know, might get to 6.5, 7.1, whatever Mm. it is. Mm. Okay, we're there. Okay, that doesn't look like a big problem. I'd really like to get that done fasting sometime. We'll get your GP to do some bloods for us. And then you've got that. But if the person said I ate two hours ago and you check and they, you know, you can check their blood glucose and it's 9.8, it's just like, "Hmm, we probably got a problem. Mm. Um, They'll look at that. Or it may not be a problem. It might be, what did you eat? Mm. they were like oh well i had my you know burger and fries and my thick shake and my you know strawberry coated sundae and it's like ah okay probably not a problem with glucose more probably an issue with the food intake so but you know if if they had their roasted chicken salad or something and they've got a blood glucose at 9.8 it's like that doesn't seem reasonable Mm. um and the other part actually i'm going to put this across 
I'm, this is a message I'm trying to, I'll, I'll probably get a plane to fly this line across the sky or something because it's driving me crazy. <laughs> Don't judge people by their body, okay? Yeah. Um, it, it's Thank a big you. thing that frustrates the hell out of me yeah. because I'm, you know, I'm genetically, you know, predisposed to being tall and lean, okay? So trying to convince doctors that, I need my cardiovascular health checked is a big issue. Yeah. Whereas alternatively, they'll look at somebody and go, oh, you're overweight. We better check your blood pressure. Um, but and they'll, so, put, they'll gloss over a whole range of other things too. That's right. Yeah. 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 So body type is not not to be considered in, in assessing risk. So, mm. And in that, I guess in that, similar realm of like, you know, how do we get people caring about the cardiometabolic health? And I guess, yeah, more specifically about blood sugar. I found, because I work with a lot of women with all sorts of hormonal imbalances and I see a lot of, you know, uh, PCOS-like pictures. And so I'm often talking about blood glucose. And what I'm finding, especially in my younger patients, the concept of like how their body is processing sugar is is almost like a little bit of an enigma. Like if they're not... Mm they might have heard of diabetes, they might have relatives that have diabetes and they might think, oh, I'm not at that level, therefore mm. I'm probably doing fine with blood sugar or I'm not fainting between meals, so my blood sugar is probably fine. So is there anything, like, I guess from a patient perspective of how people can start to be a little bit more in tune with how their body is actually metabolising sugar and carbohydrates and what their blood sugar is doing and, and what their insulin is doing? I guess just a, a packet of signs to to look out for that aren't I guess commonly spoken about in the mainstream. I, I think that you know the, the classic mid afternoon slump is your probably your number one part there. But um, one of the things that I will always talk to people about is that brain fog and tiredness and cognitive fatigue. Mm-hmm. Um, and I and I'll say to them, there will be two chief reasons for that. One is that you haven't got enough oxygen going to your brain, so you're not breathing properly. Um, that will be the first thing to interfere. And I say to them, also the second thing will be blood glucose, uh, will be gl- glucose level, because the brain does not have any capacity to store glucose. It mm. has to have a continuous supply via the blood, mm. and that's not negotiable. And so almost a third of all of the glucose of your that comes into your body is mm. consumed just by the brain yeah it's the highest consuming organ in your body even that's more than what your muscles basically consume mm. and so it needs a continuous supply and so if you're waking up and you've got the brain fog and all of that all of that is telling you that you know glucose should be a consideration certainly if you get the afternoon slump that's a classic mm. um, that's there. sleep disruption if you are not sleeping well monitor glucose okay it's it's really important um to do that uh cravings is another part you know cravings are really important and i make the link that cravings are because your body needs something but cravings can be happening because your gut microbiome is signaling your brain saying i need sugar and if you've got candida or, you know, and other things that are yeasts that thrive on growing in sugar, they're going to make sure the signal gets to your brain to say, eat sugar, eat more sugar, eat more sugar. And if you're eating that sugar and giving into those cravings, we're causing peaks and troughs. Mm. And it's less about that blood sugar is high. We don't really want that because that drives insulin and that can create insulin resistance. 
but the peaking and troughing, yeah. this is much, much more dangerous. Yeah. And so I will often speak to patients about, um, you know, do continuous glucose monitoring, put a CGM on for a couple of weeks and look at the effect that food has on your blood glucose mm -hmm. and see how if you correct for that and create more stability over that by the food you put into your body, do you feel better? And, and they do. Mm. And then they get it um, because you're right. They're being told, well, you know, if, if you're overweight and you eat like crap and you're 40 plus years of age, well, then you have to worry about glucose because you might get diabetes. But mm -hmm. I'm 35 and I'm fit and healthy. What's the problem? Yeah. yeah. Like, well, actually, your, you know, your spiking and troughing in your glucose now mm -hmm. is the precursor to you developing that diabetes later on. And so, yeah. again, it's education, getting them linked to their body and understanding what's happening. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. and just in terms of a, you know, a, a brief link, if we can sort of bridge these two worlds together, in short, what's the connection between blood sugar and cardiovascular health? The primary one is if you've got elevated glucose, you're going to have some degree of onset of inflammation because of the glucose that's there, okay? Mm. Um, but it gets a little bit more complex than that. Um, and so I suppose... That's a couple of hours answer. I, <laughs> I need to kind of shrink that down, but I'm going to pull it right down. So first one, obviously, is that um, it's less actually about the glucose, it's more about the insulin response that's occurring in the body. Mm -hmm. And so if we've got elevated glucose, we have we therefore get elevated insulin mm -hmm. to push glucose into the cell, or to unlock the door that allows glucose to enter into the cell. And that's fine, but the cell only has limited capacity via the glycolytic pathway to go glycogen, glucose, um, and then down to pyruvate. And then pyruvate has to get from the glycolytic pathway, which is an anaerobic cellular respiration, um, link up to oxygen to get into cellular, aerobic cellular respiration to go across into mitochondria and become energy. And, you know, we go run a marathon. If it doesn't do that, it goes to lactic acid, pyruvate, without enough sufficient oxygen goes to lactic acid. Hence, put in sedentary lifestyle and we're not exercising and building our cardio capacity, our aerobic capacity, less oxygen. Uh, so more lactic acid uh, build up. Well, lactic acid is inflammatory and it's not great. If a person's having a heart attack, one of the first things we want to measure them when they get to the hospital is what's your, what's your blood lactate level? Where's the lactic acid going in your body? And so... That, that tells you how much of it's, it's associated with that inflammatory and cardiovascular cascade all the way up to the acute phases. So to prevent that happening so that you're not, um, you know, not everyone doesn't have a heart attack after they've eaten a donut, the body desensitizes the cell to the insulin, yeah. takes away the receptors, but now the cell becomes starved, okay? Mm -hmm. And so it can't use the glycolytic pathway. Uh, so it'll have to swap over or use beta oxidation of fatty acids or, you know, to bring some, start to break down proteins and bring amino acids through if it needs to. Or it'll recycle stuff with creatine, phosphatase, et cetera. But overall energy begins to deplete. Mm. Okay. And as soon as energy depletes, the heart struggles. Because mm. you think about the heart, the myocardium, the muscle of the heart. Mm. One muscle cell in the heart has about 10,000 mitochondria. Yeah. 
Now let's start to starve them of what they need, okay? <laughs> How quickly is the heart going to fatigue? Yeah. Now we've got a problem. Yeah. Okay? We've got the onset of a problem. That happens 10 years before we see the problem. Mm. We, don't, we don't detect the blood pressure and all the other things that are going on. Now we've got this blood glucose up. It causes inflammation. It causes stuff. The blood vessels get damaged. Um, and so then we have atherosclerotic plaque formation. That started 10 years before we actually saw it. Okay. Mm. If we add in that the alcohol or the smoking and all the other things which are causing bits and pieces. And so that's kind of the insulin thing because we end up with this insulin resistance. Okay. Mm. And we've got to reverse that insulin resistance so that we can improve energy production, mm. ATP synthesis, AMPK. Um, and we hear a lot about NAD and those sorts of things these days. We get the energy up. When it comes to cardiovascular health, energy is life. It's mm. critical. Um, uh, so you need to do that. And so that's the, the simplest way I can put the kind of insulin part, <laughs> energy pathway. Um, and the other one, of course, then is the inflammatory pathway. And so we know that we have things like CRP, um, and we used to measure CRP from five up. Um, and then we went, well, actually, CRP below five is associated with cardiovascular problems. And so we, now we have highly sensitive CRP, which measures from one to five or less. Um, we've got homocysteine. And so if we haven't got that methylation process going, we've got homocysteine elevating. And so we need to be very conscious of that. But more so the inflammatory involvement of cortisol, because, of course, as soon as cortisol rises, what's, the, what's one of the effects of cortisol? Oh, start to elevate blood glucose levels. And so you elevate blood glucose levels, but that means we need more insulin. Well, but now we're getting more insulin resistant. And so all of a sudden, it's the inflammation and insulin and blood glucose and you know all of this cortisol, it becomes a cyclical self-perpetuating milieu of what is going to result in chronic disease. Mm. And it is utterly and absolutely silent mm. until the problem happens. And then you know about it. Mm. Um, it's like, you know, whoops, too late. That's where we, you know, we've, we've got to be aware of that now. And so how do we, how do we hear the noise before it becomes a problem? Um, we have to scream. You know, the cortisol, the inflammatory, the insulin, I think they're the kind of major influences. We've got a whole bunch of other stuff to do with, with other steroid hormones. Um, we have a whole bunch of hoopla about cholesterol, um, but... <laughs> Let's, I'll, keep my opinion to myself. <laughs> I'll keep my opinion to myself about cholesterol for now. But... Yeah, me, me too. We can talk about that off record. <laughs> the insulin resistance, the cortisol, um, and uh, the, the things that drive inflammation, all the other inflammatory markers as well, so CRP, homocysteine, those sorts of things, mm. um, they're going to kind of be like your frontline runners. Yeah. And they're easiest ones to check. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. However, back when I started working primarily around cardiovascular stuff, it was relatively easy to get things like homocysteine checked by people's yeah. GP. It's yeah. now, you know, most GPs are now yeah. quite resistant to even wanting to do it. And so we need to be more alert. It's like getting insulin now. It's very difficult to get GPs to want to check the insulin level yeah. unless you already indicate the problem. Yeah. So. yeah. And this is where it sort of becomes, you know, a much. I feel, and you know, not 
not to go off on a tangent, but I will say <laughs> it becomes much more of like a, a socio-political issue in terms of, you know, health becomes an investment where if we yeah. want if we want the data that we need yeah. that is going to help us make the difference and make the informed decisions, yeah. it, it becomes an yeah. investment that we need to make because if we rely on, I, I guess, the baseline system that's set up for us, we're either waiting or we're left without answers or we get an incomplete yeah. picture and... yeah. And then the the empowerment is taken away. You know, the, yeah. the, the health feels out of our hands. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, to empower those listeners of yours who are, you know, not necessarily well, even the practitioners, but you know, the the people who are here because they want to learn about health for their own health, is look around at the moment because all of the ability for you to get this information is right at your fingertips. Um, as health consumers now, you're in charge. There are devices you can buy and wear that track your, your primary thing. Yeah. You, there are labs that you can go online and just order the pathology, order the blood tests you want yourself. They'll send you the kit. You get the buds done. They'll send you that. And they're, they're not that expensive in most cases. I mean, if you want the big complex profiles that your practitioner orders, there's going to be some in, investment in that. But you can, you can go online to one of the online services and order your insulin level yourself. Um, yeah. and get that done for 50 bucks or whatever the case may be you've got access to this stuff it just means you have to be self-driven you have to know where to look so right. if you don't know where to look go speak to your practitioner and say how do i find this stuff and you know yeah. your practitioner will know how to direct you uh, and can help you with the things that you might not be able to get access to um, and we don't have to rely on the help on the on the typical gp model because they're doing the best they damn well can trying yeah. to cope yeah. with people and like, if you're relatively healthy, they're like, I really need to help somebody else. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Um, it's not that they don't care. It's just that they, they're dealing with what they've got to deal with. So. Overwhelmed. <laughs> yeah. 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 Absolutely. And I think that's where we can step in beautifully and say, we'll take that yeah. load off. Like if, yeah. you, <laughs> if your doctor thinks you're mostly okay, that's all right. We, we can, we can still help. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. So because I do want to, I'm, I'm realizing with the time, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is actually three podcasts. Where do I go next? With with every response of yours, Mark, I have a three. thousand questions. <laughs> I'm, I'm just sitting here biting my tongue. Yeah. <laughs> just, I, I feel I feel Julie trying really hard just to keep it like succinct and focused. And I, and I see you. I see you. Thank you. <laughs> and I wish I wish we didn't have to limit you. Um. But just still on this thread of, of cardiovascular before we perhaps touch on a, a, another topic or two, I would love for you to debunk the rabbit hole of salt and sodium yes. and hydration in terms of perhaps in the context of if we can make this into a story, someone's realised perhaps, you know, 45-year-old male, maybe even younger, they've realised they've got high blood pressure. The doctor's like, oh, you should probably do something about that. Male says, oh, okay, doctor might say something about salt, sodium, what's your intake? Oh, okay. Goes home to his wife, got to cut back on cooking with salt. Please don't salt my food, you know. Yeah. you know. Can't have that. It's got salt in it. Yeah. What's, what is your response to that presentation? I apologise to my boss. <laughs> um Okay, so let, let me put this in context. There are some people out there with, who have certain conditions where 
restricting salt is going to be necessary, okay? If we've got somebody with cardiovascular disease or uh, um, and in association with, you know, diabetic nephropathy and all of these conditions and we've got or chronic kidney disease, mm. there are reasons why clinically we may need to restrict fluid compare and, and salt. I'm going to call it salt for now. Now, then I'm going to correct the error in thinking here, right? Um, uh, well, like, which I'm going to do right now, actually. <laughs> <laughs> and, and because there are clinical indications for those people there. Now, I just want to, part of the myth of this is we go, we need to have a low salt diet. Now, salt is a complex of minerals. When you think about sea salt, rock salt, you know, um, you know, those sorts of things. Salt is not, table salt is sodium chloride. Chloride is not causing you any harm whatsoever. And so that brings us down to where the problem lies, and that is with sodium, okay? And so if we have over, if we have an overabundance of sodium in our body, there's a saying that goes, where sodium goes, water flows. And so if you have high concentration of sodium in your body, you're going to hold more water, the ID, hold more fluid, and that can cause blood pressure to rise. Mm. But if the blood pressure rises, the body, in a body that can normally otherwise adapt to that, they just go, hmm, tell the kidneys to flush out the sodium and get rid of this water. We don't need it. And what happens? Blood pressure lowers mm. down. Now, if you're eating your hot fries with salt on it, you know, for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and your sodium level's constantly up, then blood pressure is going to sit constantly high simply because a fluid balance is not a blood pressure problem. It's a fluid balance problem. Mm. So we need to get it now. Mm. So translate that back to salt. Salt is largely sodium, but it has a whole bunch of other minerals also packed in there, depending on what salt you've got. You can have up to 70 different minerals that sit in the complex of what that salt is. Mm. And that is not going to have the same effect on your body as concentrated sodium moieties. When you have processed food, we've got concentrated sodium as preservatives. We've got MSG, monosodium glutamate, as a flavor enhancer. We over-concentrate that sodium. If you're eating a predominantly plant-based whole food diet, lean quality proteins, good quality fats, low or no processed food, oof, salt drops down. Now put a bit of salt in your dinner, enjoy it. It's not going to harm you. Um, add salt to your water. And, um, you know, I was showing you before how I have a bowl of, um, I don't know which salt I have now at the moment on my desk, but oh, this is the Celtic sea salt is the oh, one nice. I'm up to. And I kind of rotate between different types of salt, but I have the Celtic sea salt that sits there. And I just put a pinch in my water. Near all of my patients get given an oral rehydration protocol that I have, which is a solution that they make up. I call it salty cordial. Um, which is basically just filtered water, coconut water, pomegranate juice, a little bit of citrus juice and salt. Um, and you make, mix it up and that's your rehydration solution. And I do a three-day protocol where they have one glass of that first thing in the morning, the moment they wake up while they're fasting for three days in a row and an additional glass after each episode of sweat-inducing exercise for three days. Um, and hypertension patients report, actually, my blood pressure dropped. Yeah, right. And now there's a whole bunch of science behind that because 
you know, we have this thing called the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone pathway. And so that's all about how we manage these sodium and uh, potassium um, parts in our body, you know, elements in our body. Mm. So, yes, restricting concentrated sodium moieties, i.e. Uh, reduce and eliminate processed food, mm. is good if you've got things like high blood pressure or kidney disease. Mm. Restricting or totally eliminating salt from your diet for most people is not going to have any clinical benefit, but, but some people it will. But more importantly, remember that this is about fluid balance and therefore the singular and most critical thing for cardiovascular, cardio, the single for life is to remain hydrated. And I'll put it in blunt contrast for you. What is the first thing that will kill you if you don't have it? Water. No. No. Air. Oxygen. Air. Exactly. <laughs> if you if you don't breathe, maybe we should go back to school. <laughs> it felt like a trick question. <laughs> it was a trick question. If you don't breathe, you're going to start to die within a few minutes. Number yeah. two, water. Yeah. Okay. You can't go more than, you know, if you try to go three days without water, you are in a life critical stage. Mm. Okay. And if, it's, if you're caught outside in the middle of a hot weather, it could be as little as three hours. Fluid is the second biggest challenge to life or lack of fluid is the second biggest challenge to life. And I would guess that more than half the population are chronically dehydrated. I'm picturing perhaps microscopic images of those dehydrated cells and just I'm, I'm picturing the cell that just isn't plump and it's, you yep. know, yeah, it's needing hydrating. And I guess just quickly there, you know, we get amounts of water thrown around. What's a sort of tailored way that people can ensure they're getting enough water? Do you sort of do a measurement? Well, we I do urine dipstick measurements on my patients in the clinic to make sure to see what their specific gravity and all that sort of stuff is. Um, the, probably the most scientific method for ensuring that a person is properly hydrated is that your urine's clear. Yeah. Right? And so we tell everybody, if you pee and your urine's yellow, drink two glasses of water. The more scientific calculation that I give people is you should, I want you to drink a minimum of 250 mils of water every hour for the first 10 waking hours of your day, right? So that's going to give them two and a half litres. And then I use the Gelpin equation during exercise, uh, 2.2 mils per kilo every 15 minutes mm. during the exercise. And the fluid you consume during exercise does not contribute to your base fluid intake for the day. Mm. Mm. Okay, so that's kind of what it is. And so that's the more nuanced way of doing it. But essentially, and the only reason I really bother with the calculation is either they're an athlete or somebody that I have to be more precise with, or I've got them on vitamin Bs and so the urine's always yellow. <laughs> so I've got to kind of cal calculate their fluid intake for them. Otherwise, they're going to drink themselves into hyperhydration because they're trying to get their urine back to white. But, but generally, if at the end of the day, if, even if you take a B vitamin in the morning, if at the end of the day your urine is not almost perfectly clear, you're underhydrated and you yeah. should increase your fluid intake yeah. that's a good guy i like, I like that, that. that i'm, I'm going to time stamp that and just send it to all of my all of my patients and friends because that's that's a really great guy yeah. yeah yeah so look we've got we've got a bit of time left 
Uh, Julie, I, I know I've been dominating with the questioning. Is there any is there any topic that you wanted to touch on with Mark or that you're really dying for an answer for? Or... Uh, well, there's 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 a couple. Mm-hmm. I I really like hearing. I'd like to hear a bit more about the near infrared light therapy. So it's completely off the. Well, it's not completely off the top of the no, subject. Yeah. But a bit of a, a wild card, um, wild card yeah, at the end. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, it's, uh, the red light therapy, I think this is something that I'm looking much, much more closely at. And actually I'm looking at it for the cardiovascular patients. And there's a whole bunch of reasons why that. I'll talk about that briefly. But um, most people will be familiar with infrared sauna. Mm. Okay. And so that's one one therapy what we're talking about here is something very different called red light therapy and so red light therapy uses visible red light so when you look at it it's a red led that's shining light at you and near infrared light um which is you can still kind of faintly see it glowing um as red light but it's not infrared light like in a sauna and so when you have red light therapy, there's a gentle warmth to it. You can have total cold therapy, which is only the visible red light, but the visible red light penetrates less deeply into your body than the near infrared mm. does. And it generates a comfortable warmth. So it's kind of warm red light therapy. The vast majority of the research around red light therapy is in collagen production. And you can see there's masks and all sorts of things yeah. now for people to look pretty. I love the science behind it. This is what caught me. So a, a couple of years back, as humans evolved, and we weren't humans, we were kind of like cellular sludge, these bacteria decided to crawl inside the cells. And then those cells grouped together and became a whole bunch of things that eventually turned into us humans. And the evolutionary outcome of that bacteria that got into our cells back then, they are what is or has formed our mitochondria today. And those cells were photoactivated. They they had photoreceptors on their surface. Now, our mitochondria are not that bacteria. Don't worry, people, you haven't got weird bacteria, ancient bacteria crawling around inside your cells, but you've got the evolutionary adaptation of that same bacteria, and we still have the photoreceptors attached to it, and it responds to red light. Makes sense. So, you know, I want to catch the last rays of the day and then go to sleep so that overnight my activated mitochondria are going to produce energy ready for me to wake up fully charged in the morning. Makes complete sense when you think about it from an evolutionary biology point point of view. So what's happening with red light therapy is it's penetrating down and it's activating the mitochondria. And so we upregulate mitochondria to produce more energy so we get better cellular energy. Um, It also induces the release of uh, nitric oxide. So we get that vasodilatory effect that can occur. Um, And the newer evidence is showing that not only is it upregulating mitochondria, but it's also stimulating mitogenesis. It's helping our cells to start to create more mitochondria, which improves energy metabolism down the track. And so when it comes to cardiovascular stuff, I want them to have active mitochondria. I want things happening. If you increase mitochondria inside the cell, the cell says, well, that means I now need to have more of the fuel to make the mitochondria work. I need to improve my insulin sensitivity to get more glucose into the cell because I've got more mitochondria now. And so we we can improve glucose sensitivity. And so it'll set in chain, in motion, a chain of events that effectively when you follow it down, 
if it works out right, and we don't have all the evidence now, but if it works out right, it, we're going to reverse these chronic conditions. And so I think red light therapy is a great way. I'm always looking for a way where we can treat people without giving them more pills and potions. Like what can we get? If you want to sit down after dinner and read a book, do so in front of a red light. Okay, mm -hmm. it's not going to harm you. And then I'm going to get very excited and want to talk about a whole bunch of other side bits, but I'll just hold off now and let you ask the questions. <laughs> and I will say the, probably the biggest thing that we wanted to ask about the near-infrared was um, was what do we what does Mark think in terms of the evolutionary aspect yeah, of it? So you, put, you, 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 it. <laughs> you read our minds, so that's brilliant. Yeah. And I guess we also wanted to check in on you know, in terms of this being a very specific therapy where you're, you use a very specific device, is this, you worded the question really well earlier in terms of is our modern life and, you know, yeah. environmental factors uh, making it more necessary to ha perhaps use these devices rather than turning to, rather than natural light, yeah. I guess. Well, I mean, you think about it, you know, in the past we ran around now, we weren't so necessarily heavily clothed. And <laughs> we were basically out and about in the world, you know, with yeah. the hunter-gatherer or whatever you want to think about the evolution of, of the species and so on and so forth. Um, these days we spend more time indoors. We sit inside our cave all day long behind glass, which stops all that happening, mm. under quite intense blue light coming from all of these things. And so we've quite blue light replete, but... Yeah. We're not necessarily getting red light. And then these days, of course, if you go out in the sun, slip, stop, slap, and, you know, cover yourself. And so we're blocking all of that. And the thing about this red light, and this is why you've got to be careful with the infrared sauna, not careful with it, but why you need to be aware that the infrared sauna doesn't have quite the same effect. Infrared's great for detoxification and clearance and getting anti-inflammatory and getting stuff out. But once you develop a sweat level on your surface of your skin, the light is refracted. And once it's refracted, so the infrared that causes heat makes you sweat profusely and do all of that isn't going to penetrate as deep in because it's getting refracted by the sweat layer that's on the top of you. So that the cold light therapy, which doesn't induce that sweat, can penetrate more deeply. And so if you now translate that to putting oily films of yeah. sunscreen and whatever it is on your body, we're not getting penetration. So we're not getting down to that level. Um, and we're covered from neck to, you know, toes. And so we don't have the exposure to the outdoor environment that we previously had. Mm -hmm. um, so this is potentially a way to do it. But, you know, I'm, I'm quite open to anybody who wants to don their loincloth and go barefoot <laughs> running around outside if that's what they wish to do. But Yeah. yeah. I also wondered whether mm. there might be uh, some interference also from you know, particulate matter that, that's in our atmosphere that's different from maybe... Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I think that, that the air quality is certainly very different now. Um, and we do have to be sensible about sun exposure now because it, we don't want to damage skin. Uh, sun exposure is oxidative, you know, causes yeah. oxidation yeah. and problems. And so we have to be sensible or we can combine the two. You know, yeah. red light therapy is relatively cheap for most people these days. You can buy your own unit at home for a few hundred dollars and then you've got it forever. You can, you, there are lots of places that do red light therapy, you know, you know, uh, lots of wellness centres, et cetera, that do red light therapy. You know, it, it's something you want to do consistently for a long period. You know, you want to do it for 
15 to 20 minutes twice a week. Mm. Uh, you don't want to be paying 50 bucks a session to do that. Yeah. Uh, 20 years, so you may as well just go buy your own. Yeah. But if you want to give it a go and see how it feels, go mm. and try it at a wellness center before you invest. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. Yeah. Oh. The follow up to oh. the um to the red light therapy is the hyperbaric, low pressure hyperbaric. Yeah. So mild hyperbaric oxygen therapy. So this is a bit of the woo woo bit on the side at the moment because the evidence is not necessarily fully there. Okay. But it so, makes sense when you explained it to me. It, well, it does. Now, and my concept, and I'm doing more work to try to understand this. So my concept. I'll go back when we talk about red light therapy, you know, the body suddenly changes and says, well, I've got more mitochondria. I need more stuff to make energy with, so get glucose in, et cetera. Well, what is one of the most critical things that the mitochondria need to work most efficiently? Well, that's oxygen. Mm. And so combining red light therapy with mild hyperbaric oxygen therapy, where you're saturating the body temporarily with a higher concentration of oxygen, then you go hop inside your red light therapy booth and you get your red light therapy and upregulate what's happening there. We've just provided the most vital ingredient for the mitochondria to produce energy, mm. which is oxygen. And the mild hyperbaric oxygen therapy only goes up to about three, 3.5 atmospheric pressures. It is equivalent to the, the pressure that you get when you take off in a plane. It's not like the big tanks that we put divers in. Um, that's a whole different ball game and you know you don't want to be doing that this is quite mild um, you don't really notice much you might get a little bubbling in your ear if you're sensitive to plane pressures etc but you don't really notice that much but if we can get twice as much oxygen saturation in our body while we're doing red light therapy temporarily then we improve mitochondrial function in that time and so personally my experience with doing this is um, that I feel, definitely feel much more alive. And the interesting part that I get is that I walk more upright, okay? I was like, <laughs> why do I do that? <laughs> That's a bit weird. And I thought about it, put it on, and this is hypothetical. It's my, just my, you know, you, you're all getting insight into what goes on inside my head. But, you know, this is 24-7. But my thought is this, is it kind of makes sense because if I'm activating mitochondria and I'm making them work more, I've got more energy production in the muscles. Therefore, I have less muscle fatigue yeah. and therefore I'm going to hold my posture more evenly, whereas as muscles fatigue, your posture starts to drop. Yeah. And so because I have the energy, I probably self-correct for that for a period of time and over time it drops and then i go hop back into the space tank and off i go again and do it again yeah. and so that's my theory um, but i'm yet to design the the research to back it up so, so how how frequently are you doing this this combo nowhere near enough <laughs> <laughs> nowhere near enough at the moment when you start to slump you like and you know it's time to i, I would recommend if people can to try to do it twice weekly yeah. Uh, I'm not getting close to that. I'm doing it once every couple of weeks um, at the moment. So yeah. but that's my own laziness. <laughs> so don't <laughs> learn from me. <laughs> oh, oh, Mark, thank you so much for answering our uh, complex questions that you, you managed <laughs> to get down in those gorgeous digestible answers. Yeah. I guess just to quickly wrap up, if people are curious to learn more, to work with you, to work with MFM, where's the, the best point of contact? 
for that? Absolutely, yeah. You can go to the website, which is mfm.au. Mm -hmm. um, uh, simplest email, uh, simplest web address you'll ever come across. <laughs> um, and you can read all about our work here at Melbourne Functional Medicine. Um, if you're um, not sick and you're interested in optimization, you can go to optimizer slash mfm.au. And that will take you specific to all of our optimization content as well. Um, our profiles are on there. Um, I work with a team of different practitioners, so it may not be me that is the best practitioner for your for your needs. Um, the other ones may be better suited. Um, but yeah, pop along there, give the clinic a call. Um, there's a wealth of information on the website that you can um, that you can have a look at as well. Look at the blog, follow the blog. We all chat about interesting stuff. There's a research blog as well that's there where we put up a whole bunch of interesting research that we just come across and we summarise it for people. So we put out plenty of information for people to learn more. Yeah, nice. Fantastic. Awesome. Sounds good. Yeah. Thank you, Mark. And I dare I say this is not going to be the last podcast that we request of you. <laughs> <laughs> I believe there's a list of questions somewhere if I didn't yeah. got through. So. Thank Absolutely. you. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much. Absolutely welcome. It's been a pleasure and I look forward to coming back and having another chat sometime. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Nuanced Naturopaths. Be sure to ask us any questions you have below, engage with the polls and we'll catch you in the next one.